Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining me today as we look at a brand new subject for today and tomorrow. And I'm going to be talking about lessons about financial stewardship. And uh, these are lessons uh, that I've learned from the Word of God, and I know that they will help you. And the first point is very simple. God owns it all. He owns it all. You know, I used to think that, well, I own the money, and then I give maybe 10% to the Lord, and then I can live on the 90%, and and, uh, maybe I should save some. But I've learned that God owns it all. The psalmist says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world is and everything in it. You founded them. Haggai, that little minor prophet, was even more specific in Haggai 2.8. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this reminds me of a funny story I once heard many years ago. God was approached by a scientist who said, listen, God, we've decided that we don't need you anymore. Uh, These days we can clone people, We can transplant organs and do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. God replied, don't need me, huh? Well, how about you put your theory to the test? We're going to have a competition. We're going to see who can make a human being. Say, let's make a, a male human being. Well, the scientist agrees. So God declares they should do it like he did it in the good old days when he created Adam. Fine, said the scientist, and he bends down and he scoops up a handful of dirt. Oh, hold on, says God, shaking his head in disapproval. Not so fast. You got to go get your own dirt. I created that dirt. Isn't that kind of funny? Well, God is the source of everything. That's why we can trust Philippians 4.19. That says that my God shall supply for all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Proverbs 8.20 says, I lend in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the pass of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit in substance, and I will fill their treasures. I want you to know that God owns it all. Paul said that God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. So if you're interested in learning more about this topic of God owns it all, there's a really good study by Ron Blue, and uh, he's got over 40 years experience in the financial services industry, probably more like 50 years now. And he's actually written a book, God Owns It All, and he tackles this question. And so I would encourage you to look at that further. Well, here's the second point. Number one, God owns it all. Number two, greed is deadly. You know, a strict, literal reading of the Bible might not sit well with you if you really love money. Because look at what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus is speaking, talking about a rich young ruler. And he says, It is easier. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this often quoted passage might not sit well if you thinking that uh, I'm a good person, I'm a rich person, and I'm going to still go to heaven. Now, he's not saying that you're not going to go to heaven because you are wealthy. He's just saying that if you got a lot of money, you're very self-sufficient, 
it's harder for you to see your need for a relationship with God. As we look at the Bible, Paul gives this strong message. It's kind of a famous warning to young Timothy. He says, you know, that those who want to get rich, those who set their entire purpose and their entire agenda in life to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Paul is reminding us, if you set as your agenda to become rich, if that is the the essence of why you exist, you are going to plunge yourself into ruin. Verse number 8, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, having longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, even harsher words are found in the book of James. As a matter of fact, it's a particularly scary passage when James says, Come now, James 5, come now, you who are rich. He says, weep, howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Uh, Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You see, we hate greed, but it's really hard to admit when we're greedy. Zogby conducted a poll in which the respondents were looking at greed and and materialism, and they said that this is a most urgent problem, greed, in American culture. And as they looked at this poll, 78% of Americans disagreed with the statement, greed is good. Only 19% said that greed is a good thing. An overwhelming majority of Americans, even today, believe that greed is not good. A recent poll asked readers, what is the deadliest of sin? You know what ranked number one? Greed ranked number one. But surprisingly, although everyone thinks greed is a terrible problem, most people don't think that they are greedy. The BBC conducted a poll on the seven deadly sins. Anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and laziness, and greed was last on the list in answer to these two questions. Here's the first one. Which sin have you ever committed? Greed was on the bottom of the list. Which sin have you committed in the past month? Greed was on the bottom of the list. As we look at this, even though it was clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. You see, greed, like pride, hides itself from the victim. So we've learned so far that God owns it all. We've learned that greed should be avoided at all costs because greed is deadly. And number three, we must manage debt. Now, as we look at debt, nearly half of Americans are very ashamed 
at the level of debt that they have. So there's apparently this, this stigma attached to carrying, especially consumer debt, that we would call credit card debt. More than a third of Americans say that they would be embarrassed to let others know that they're not paying off their credit card debt in full every month. More than 40% say they believe they will be judged by family and by friends because of the high level of credit card debt they have. The surprising thing is that Americans' average credit card debt is $15,000. Now, you talk about an elephant in the room. Uh, There was an executive for the firm that completed a survey that said, it's no surprise that shame about debt isn't necessarily productive in preventing or eradicating it. Shame doesn't guarantee success. The only way to pay off a debt is to face it head on and make a plan to get rid of it. You know, that's true with any kind of sin. We cannot get victory over a sin just by shaming that sin. I mean, after all, if that worked, the more we shamed the person, the more righteous they would live. But we know that doesn't work. What happens when we're experiencing shame is because we have something in our life that is off. There's a pain in our lives, and the shame is not helping us to get released from that pain. You see, debt only empowers the wicked. It drags down hope for your prosperity. The Bible says these ancient warnings against money lenders are just as relevant today for households that have maxed out credit cards and sought immediate gratification. Proverbs 22, 7 says, and here's a caution. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And so I want to encourage you to manage your debt. Have a plan to reduce your debt and pay off your debt. Here's a fourth lesson I've learned about financial stewardship. And every one of these points that I'm giving you are kind of a, a sermon in and of itself. But number four would be live on a plan, live on a budget. And I believe the best way to start is doing the 80-10-10 plan. And this is not new with me. Uh, I'm not sure who originally came up with the 80-10-10 plan. But for years, the rate at which Americans saved is so low that it nearly qualifies as we're not saving at all. So 80% is what you live on, 10% is what you give, and 10% is what you save. That's the 80-10-10 plan. 2 Corinthians 16, it gives us really good advice as far as saving money and giving money. On the first day of the week, each one of you to set aside some money and save as he may prosper so that no collections can be made when it comes. So here Paul is reminding the early church and reminding us here that we are to set aside 10% to give, set aside some to, to save, and then you're going to prosper. So when we think about giving and saving and living within our means, it is fascinating when you think about what happens to a person who are generous. Now, I believe, in spite of our flaws as Americans, one of the reasons I believe that God has continued to bless our nation is not because of our great morality. I think one of the reasons that God has blessed us is because as a nation, even today, the American people are the most generous givers. We always top the charts 
as far as our percentage which we're giving. You know, when you think about the three most charitable cities in America, now this this kind of blew my mind. Christians in Idaho cities are giving the most. People who live in Idaho, that is the most generous state. On average, people in Idaho give $17,977 a year to charitable causes. Now, that beats out people in other places, you know, and it's kind of surprised me when I got thinking about it because you don't think of Idaho as a high-income state. And when you think of high-income states, you think about California, New York, maybe, maybe Illinois, right, and Chicago. But look at these cities. Idaho cities average giving $17,000 a year. New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago, their average was 3308 per person per year. You know, something else uh, seems to affect our generosity. Age also seems to affect our generosity. 84% of millennials give less than $50 to charity per year. Today, the average church attenders, those who claim to be giving, are not really giving a tithe. They are actually giving 2.5% of their annual income. Now, this is kind of disappointing because during the Great Depression, the average church attendant would give 3.3%. So when we look at this, we discover that uh, some people will say, well, you know, my church is a little more uh, evangelical and we take a higher view of Scripture, so our giving rate is probably going to be a lot higher, right? Uh, well, the giving rate with evangelical Christians is 2.7 compared to 2.5 of the general Christian population. So it's not a whole lot better when you think about it. So anyway, when we think about this whole matter of being able to live within a budget. Why don't you strive for living under the 80-10-10 plan? And then here's my next point. If at all possible, avoid bankruptcy. This ought to be the last way out of a debt. You know, and sometimes I, I realize that this is unavoidable and there's no other way out. Uh, maybe you've had a, a catastrophe happen in your life and, and you've got uh, $150,000 worth of medical bills and there's no way you can pay it back. If at all possible, if at all possible, avoid bankruptcy. So when you think about maybe just walking away from a mortgage, right, uh, that you can't afford anymore. Psalm 37, 2 might seem kind of stern, but the psalmist says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5, 5 also warns that it's better that you should not vow than to give a vow and not pay for your vow. So avoid bankruptcy. That should be the the very last resort. Sometimes people wrongly think that if I had a whole bunch of money, right, that I would never have to face bankruptcy. And I think that God often slowly brings us out of financial crisis so that we don't quickly go back into it. When we think about getting a whole lot of money all at once, say, okay, I'm no longer going to have to worry about my bills anymore. Uh, Well, there's an awful lot of lottery winners who file for bankruptcy. So if you happen to win the lottery, will your financial situation really improve? 
Well, uh, actually, according to a recent study, uh, the answer is uh, maybe not. Three economic professors wrote a paper entitled The Ticket to Easy Street, The Financial Consequences of Winning the Lottery. Their research tried to address the following question. Does a lottery windfall have a permanent impact or does it merely postpone financial pain? Does getting a boatload of money solve people's financial problems? Or does it just push those problems down the road? Well, the professors obtained a list of winners for a Florida lotto game called the Fantasy Five. Then they were uh, going out and they compared the names to the Florida bankruptcy records to see how many winners filed for bankruptcy and when they filed for bankruptcy. In the first couple of years after winning a jackpot, people who won small amounts were more likely to file bankruptcy than those who won the larger amounts. That makes sense. Somebody with a large amount of money can initially weather a bad time or keep the creditors at bay. But after three years, large lottery winners were more likely to file for bankruptcy than small winners. The people who won large sums did not use their new wealth to pay down debt. Financial consultant Don McNay concludes, Winning the lottery didn't help people increase their net worth. They needed to have set goals and an understanding of finance to make their lives better. It appears that the lottery winners did not have these fundamental tools. They didn't have the ability to understand the importance of paying off debt. You know, Pretending that you don't have debt doesn't reduce it. I remember my son, Nathan, uh, when he was growing up, sometimes I have to get after him as parents do with their children. And I remember sometimes I'd, I'd hit a nerve with Nathan. And what would he do? Nathan would turn his head and close his eyes and pretend there was no problem. Sometimes he'd even cross his arms and squint his eyes closed real tight. Like, uh, I don't see a problem. There must be no problem. Uh, some people do the same thing with their debt. Uh, they're getting letters in the mail. They're getting phone calls of collection agencies that are coming after them. And if and just pretending that if I don't deal with it, it would just go away. Well, well, it won't. It will eventually catch up with you. Well, here's another lesson that I think is so important for all who want to uh, be good financial stewards and, and experience financial peace. You got to pay your taxes. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. And they were trying to trip Jesus up. And so Jesus is being asked about whether or not taxes should be paid. And so Jesus in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 17, says, um, Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Jesus knew their intent. They were trying to trip him up. And he says, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He says, Give me a coin. Show me the coin that you use for paying the taxes. So they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Well, it's Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. In full agreement, the Apostle Paul taught, these 
are the way you pay your taxes. Because these are the authority from God, and we are to give our taxes to the governing authority. Now, when Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 13, he gives us some extra added teaching on this matter. And he talks about why we pay taxes. And as we're paying taxes, we are paying for God's servants so they can give their full time to governing. And we can make the same case for giving your tithes and offerings to your church so that your pastor and your staff can devote their lives full time to the ministry. So we give our taxes so that those who are in governmental positions can spend their full time governing. But then Paul also says, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, this is Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, and then honor. So he says, owe no man anything. So pay your debts. Pay your taxes. Now, it seems there is an endless amount of the types of taxes to which we are called upon to pay. You know, taxes are very unpopular. And sometimes the government agencies in charge of collecting taxes, you know, we look down on them, right? And we look at, this is a corrupt government. Why do I have to give money to this corrupt government? Uh, But I want you to know that in biblical times, tax collectors, they weren't thought of highly in the Bible either. As much as we hate taxes, as much as any tax system can be very corrupt and be very unfair. As much as we believe there are far better things for our money to go toward, the Bible commands us, yes, commands us, to pay our taxes. It makes it very clear that we submit ourselves to the government. Now, the only instance in which we're allowed to disobey the government is when it tells us to do something that the Bible forbids. Now, the Bible does not forbid the paying of taxes. In fact, the Bible encourages us to pay our taxes. So therefore, we submit to God and his word, and we pay our taxes. Now, generally speaking, taxes are intended to enable the beneficial running of a society. Depending on one's priorities, tax revenue is not always put to the best use. I I understand that. The most frequent objection to paying taxes is that the money is being misused by the government, or the money is going to fund evil purposes within the government. That, however, is really not our concern. Notice what Jesus said. Give to Caesar. You know, the Roman government was by no means a righteous government. When Paul instructed us to pay taxes, you know, Nero was one of the most evil Roman emperors in all of history. He was the head of the government. So we are to pay our taxes even when the government is not honoring God. Now, I I do want to encourage you, we are free to take every legal tax deduction available. So if you're like me, when I give to my church, and I try to give very generously to my church, there is a tax deduction that I can claim for my charitable contributions. Now, we don't have to pay the maximum amount of taxes possible. You know, if the government gives us a tax break, we are free to take it. There's a legal way in which we can shelter some of our money from being taxed. By all means, we are to do it. Romans 13 tells us, consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against the God that God has instituted, 
and uh, we'll be bringing judgment upon ourselves. But if there's a legal way that is provided for us, then by all means, we should take it. Well, I want to encourage you to join me tomorrow. We're going to finish up this lesson tomorrow on financial stewardship, biblical lessons about finances. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if I can help you in any way with a prayer request, please shoot me a text, 252-267-2365. I would love to pray for you. And I'd love to see you at church this Sunday. Come on out and join us at Hickory Ridge Community Church. We have a service at 9 or a service at 1045 on Sunday morning. We have small groups that you can get involved in. Lots of ways to serve the Lord at Hickory Ridge Community Church. If you're looking for a job, we have an academy that goes from birth up to kindergarten 5, K5. Uh, We're always looking for good people. Give the church a call, 421-7500. If you're looking for an opportunity to be involved in working with a wonderful organization called Hickory Ridge Academy. Well, God bless you. I'm so thankful that you joined me today. I look forward to the second part of this lesson tomorrow, lessons about financial stewardship. My number one more time, 252-267-2365. God bless you. I'm praying for you, and I look forward to talking with you tomorrow, 252-267-2365. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.